Good morning. I'll invite you to open your Bibles to Paul's letter to the church in Rome, Romans chapter 11. And we're only going to look at one verse there, Romans chapter 11, uh, verse 36. And as you find your way to that location in the Bible, let me invite you also to uh, close your eyes and bow your heads and join me in a word of prayer. So Lord, we thank you that you are present here. We thank you for your Holy Spirit, for the work of your Spirit in this place, for the abundance of love and grace and welcome that we experience from you. Lord, help us uh, to come as we are, uh, but not to stay as we are. Help us to come as we are and to bring to you uh, all of our uh, wounds, our secrets, our brokenness, our cynicism, our doubts, our fears. Help us to bring to you all that stands in the way of our own generous relationships. So, Lord, as we bring ourselves to you, receive this worship. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, Romans 11, verse 36, reads this way. Uh, we're going to actually look at a second translation uh, a little bit later on in the message today. But in this translation, we read, for everything, everybody say that out loud, everything, for everything comes from him. Everything exists by his power and is intended for his glory. To him be glory forevermore. I'll read it one more time because it's so short. Everything comes from him. Everything exists by his power and is intended for his glory. To him be the glory forever. Amen. So this morning we are launching our series on relationships. And when we're thinking about relationships together for the next five or six weeks, uh, we're thinking about all sorts of relationships that we might have. We're thinking about uh, the good relationships, the challenging relationships, the difficult relationships, maybe the relationships that we've walked away from, relationships with family members, relationships with friends, relationships with coworkers, relationships uh, with people who are challenging to us, uh, perhaps uh, enemies even. We're thinking about all sorts of relationships. And as we think about these relationships together for the next number of weeks, we aren't going to just be thinking about techniques. Uh, it's easy to come uh, to a place where we think relationships are just about a technique. If I just learn a communication technique, or I just learn a listening technique, I just learn uh, some new thing to do, my relationships will improve. Um, this relationship is not just about techniques or good intentions. Uh, this is a series that uh, will invite us to become disciples of Jesus. And this series is a series that will invite us to follow Jesus uh, into our relationships. Uh, Dallas Willard used to use the word apprentice when he thought, thought about and, and taught about discipleship. Our goal as we enter into this uh, time of learning and practicing and growing together is to become apprentices to Jesus, to become disciples of Jesus, to, to, to learn to do relationships the way that Jesus did relationships. Have you ever noticed as you read through the stories of the Gospels how Jesus was masterful in all of his relationships? Jesus never missed. He never messed up. He never did it wrong. 
He brought grace into every relationship encounter he had, no matter what he was getting from the other person. Everyone he related to in relationship had the opportunity to step up and to see and to experience God. So this series is about apprenticing to the relationship master. And following Jesus into our relationships means that we have to start where Jesus started. We begin in the place where Jesus began. And the most salient feature, if you think of all of the characteristics, all of the features of Jesus' life, all that Jesus was, the most salient, pervasive, consistent feature of Jesus' life is that he lived with this unwavering commitment to knowing and loving God. He lived with this unwavering commitment to knowing and loving God. That was the foundation for everything that he did. He says in the Gospel of John, for example, that he never says a word, and he never engages in an activity. He never takes action unless it's clear that the word and the action are from God himself. He never does anything, he says, on his own. So much so that in, in John's gospel, he can say, the Father and I are one. So here's what I want us to hear. Your life will always become like the God that you worship. Your life will always eventually come to reflect the God that you worship. Uh, the ultimate good in your life will shape you. Your life will always become a reflection of the God that you worship. And so the Bible never asks the question, do you worship a God? Do you have an ultimate good? Will you have an ultimate good? The Bible never asks if, it simply asks what. What or who is your God? Who is the God that you worship? Who is the God that your life is coming more and more to reflect? So Philippians 3 uh, we find Paul talking about uh, people who worship their physical appetites. Uh, and he says, memorably and graphically, their God is their stomach. Remember the text? And he says, because their God is their stomach, their lives become a reflection of this unending pursuit of their own appetites. And they'll debase themselves in order to, to, to meet and to, to, to nourish those appetites. In Romans 1, Paul describes people who have rejected the living God and instead have come to worship thin substitutes. And he says, as a result, their lives have come to be thin. Their lives are uh, simply uh, hollow caricatures of what human life was intended to be, what human life could be. Uh, is possible, what is possible for human life. On the other hand, in, in 2 Corinthians 3, Paul says in verse 18 that when we cultivate a relationship with the God that reveals himself in the Bible, uh, the Spirit will work in us to make us more and more like him. And he says we will reflect his glory. We worship the God who reveals himself in Scripture, and we come to reflect that God. So the question as we begin this series on relationships is fundamentally and ultimately about your relationship to God. What is your God like? What God do you reflect? Many of you know Pastor John Ortberg, a well-known pastor, writer, 
thinker. Pastor Ortberg, John, tell us a story of walking down a street uh, one evening in Newport Beach, California. And uh, Ortberg says that uh, he was along with a couple of uh, his friends. Uh, one was a colleague on staff with him at the church that he worked at at the time, and another was an elder at the same church. And he says as they walked down the street and uh, that beach community, uh, they walked past a bar. And uh, he said there was a commotion going on in the bar as they approached and uh, as they uh, uh, drew adjacent to the doorway, a fight that had been going on inside the bar spilled out into the street. Uh, he said it was like he was stepping into the pages of a, uh, a Western novel or movie. And uh, this fight came out into the street, and he says there was one, uh, one smaller man uh, being uh, beaten up by three attackers, and the, uh, the, the recipient of the attack was bloodied and was already looking like uh, he was the worst for the wear. And uh, John said, I didn't know what we could do, but I felt we had to do something. And so the three of us, pastor, pastor, elder, right, approached. He said, and, and none of us are all that big. None of us are all that intimidating. Um, and all we did was walk over and said, hey, guys, cut it out. And he didn't really expect it to do much good. And he said, imagine his surprise when all of a sudden the three attackers looked up at him and their eyes grew wide and they ran away. He said, hmm, it's really interesting. wonder how that worked. That worked out a lot better than I thought it would. Then he turned around and he said, standing there behind me was the largest specimen of humanity he'd ever seen in his life. The bouncer from the bar had stepped outside, and he said this man had to be six foot seven, 300 pounds, 2% body fat. For the purposes of the story, we'll call him Bubba, right? And he said Bubba came out and never said a word. He just stood there and flexed, as if saying, go ahead, try something. And those three attackers saw Bubba standing there and ran away. Well... John says, his attitude immediately changed. And as the attackers ran away, he called out, Yeah, and you better not try anything else around here. He was filled with this boldness, right? This confidence. He says, I was ready to help whoever needed help. I was ready to serve whoever needed to be served. I was ready to jump in and do whatever was necessary. Why? He says, because I had this great big Bubba standing at my back. I was convinced that I was not alone. I was safe. And then he speculates. He said, you know, if, if I was convinced that Bubba was with me 24 hours a day, think about it. I would have a fundamentally different approach to life. If I knew that Bubba was behind me and had my back all of the time, Nobody would want to mess with me. I would move through life with confidence. But he's not. And I can't count on Bubba. Instead, again and again, the writers of Scripture ask us the question, how big is your God? How big is your God? How big is the God who always stands behind you? How big is the God who always has your back? who always shows up. How big, friends, is your God? Is your God a big God? Or is your God a puny God? If your God is small, vindictive, punitive, 
harsh, then you will come to reflect that God in your relationships. People will experience you, and you will experience others as petty and defensive and harsh and arrogant and driven by the need to control. When your God is big, when the God who has your back is generous and gracious and lavish and unquenchable, then you're going to reflect that big God in your relationships. You'll experience people and others will experience you as nourishing and healing and joyful and lovely. Your life and therefore your relationships and my relationships will reflect the God that you worship. Neuroscience is even suggesting that this might be true in ways that Paul could never have anticipated. Neuroscientist Andrew Newberg at the University of Pennsylvania has been studying the intersections of spirituality and neurology for a number of years now. And one of the things that uh, uh, Professor uh, Newberg and his team have published is that almost any kind of centering prayer or meditation work is beneficial for our brains. Our brains respond. Things happen to the hardwiring of our brains when we engage in contemplative meditation. But he says the greatest improvements are found specifically in the brains of those who meditate on a God of love. When you meditate on a God of love, something very specific and unique happens. We have an increased capacity in our prefrontal cortex for expressions of empathy, compassion, and generosity, as well as critical thinking and memory. Dr. Newberg makes this amazing claim. He says, worshiping a God specifically of love actually heals our brains. On the other hand, meditating on a God, he says, who is punitive, authoritarian, critical, or distant, reinforces our fear circuits, activates our fear responses. And he says there's even a measurable increase in chronic inflammation. When we worship a God who is mostly angry or disappointed or demanding, we become more fearful. And fear and love don't coexist. Fear and generosity don't flow from the same heart. Who is your God? What is the God that you worship like? So enter our text here for this morning. Paul says, this is your God. This, this, this is your God. This is the God that I want you to know. This is the God that I want you to worship. This big God is the God that I want you to come to reflect. He says in another translation, from him, through him, to him, all things. From him, through him, to him, all things. To him be glory for eternity. Amen. This is a big generous, outpouring God. And we're invited in this very next verse in Romans 12, 1, to worship this big, generous, outpouring God. And then in Romans 12, 2, not only do we worship this God, but out of the worship of this God, Paul says we become like this God. Our minds are renewed. Our minds are changed. Let's walk through this verse. The first verb that he says is all things come from this God, from him. 
Paul says is everything belongs to God. Nothing is excluded. Not only, he says, the physical world, but he also describes the unseen spiritual world. And just a couple of verses previously, in verse 33, he says that wisdom and knowledge, all wisdom and all knowledge, also belong to this God. And we can intellectually grasp that. Uh, if, if God is who God says he is, if God is the creator, uh, if, if, if God is God, then it seems to make sense that God is the owner of everything, that everything belongs to God. We can get that intellectually. But functionally, emotionally, uh, we still use a lot of possessive pronouns in our language. Uh, we still talk about my time, my money, my spouse, my family, my career, my church, my house, my rights. We use a lot of possessive language for people who believe that everything belongs to God. A big, big, big God. A God who owns everything actually comes and says, no, none of that is yours. Don't think for a minute that any of that belongs to you. It's all mine. Every last bit, every square inch is mine. If we're going to live in generous relationships, we need that in our bones. But secondly, not only are all things from God, God owns everything, but he says all things are through God. All things come from God. Think about that. God owns everything. Everything belongs to him. And everything that we have comes from him. All things come through him. What that says is that God doesn't own by keeping things. God owns by giving things. God owns by giving things away. He owns by pouring out. Not just once, but constantly pouring out, constantly giving away. All things are through him. There, there's a dynamic, uh, active sense of that word. That means not only that God created everything, but God sustains everything. He holds everything together. He's holding right now together all of the, all of the moving parts of every galaxy. He's holding apart every single atom in your body. Every molecule functions the way that it does because right now, in this very moment, God is intending and directing it to do so. If God would stop his generosity for just a millisecond, we would all be vaporized. That's who God is. God is an eternal, perpetual, continual giver. And Jesus reflects that God. He says he doesn't come to serve, to, to be served, but to serve. He doesn't come to, to take, but to give. He doesn't come to require, but to pour out his life. Generosity isn't a program. It isn't an event. It isn't a season. It's who God is. And if we worship that great big God, then our lives will more and more come to reflect that generosity. And generosity is not something that we do. It's who we are. It's who we become. And then finally, number three, to him. 
all things come to him. There's a way to misunderstand this verse. God gets everything back in the end. Uh, It's possible to hear that and to assume that what God is doing is giving things away so that he can get back even more. It's like he's investing in us in the hopes that we'll be really thankful and, and praising him and worshiping him. God doesn't uh, give in order to get. There's a uh, fairy tale about two brothers. <laughs> one was rich and the other one was poor. They were both farmers. The poor brother planted his crop like he did every year. and One season, he went out into his field and he noticed that uh, there was a particularly large turnip. It was a massive turnip. It was so massive that uh, he only had room for the one turnip in his cart, and he needed to borrow a second ox to pull the cart. So big was this turnip. And the poor brother had never seen a turnip like this, and he didn't know what he should do with it. He didn't want to eat it himself, and he didn't just want to sell it. So he decided that he would give his turnip as a gift to the king. He came before the king and presented his turnip, and he said, Your Majesty, uh, this is the most magnificent turnip my garden has ever produced, and I want to give it to you. The king was impressed at the size of the man's turnip, and he received the gift, and he said something like, You're a very lucky fellow. And with great humility, the poor brother said, No, no, I'm the most unlucky of all. I'm just a poor dirt farmer. I have nothing. The king had compassion on him, was moved and pitied him. And he said, uh, I want to give you something. I want to give you horses and gold and land. I want to give you enough so that your life will always be comfortable. It wasn't long before the rich brother heard of the transaction between his brother and the king. And being a calculating man, he decided that if the king would respond with such generosity to a turnip, how much more would he respond to a more lavish gift? And so he piled a cart full of gold and money and tapestries and horses and paraded them before the king and said, Your Majesty, I want to give you all of this as a token of my esteem. The king was moved by this man's generosity also. The king thought for a moment. He said, You know, the only thing that I have to reward such great generosity is this remarkable turnip here. It's yours. (laughs) Now, how do you interpret a parable like that? (laughs) Certainly, you look at the older brother, and uh, it's easy to be cynical about that. His giving was only a pretense for getting. He gave in order to get something greater back. He gave something away in order to enrich himself. And our minds go there, and we see that in the older brother, because we know that that's how humanity functions. We know that we function that way. We compliment in the hopes of getting another compliment in return. We forgive in hopes of being forgiven. We give in order to get. You could also look at, if you're particularly cynical, the younger brother and say, his motives are suspect also. 
it isn't that he gave the turnip to the king with a pure heart. He was also hoping to get something in return. He was also hoping to manipulate a great reward. The only difference between the poor brother and the rich man is that the poor brother was more successful at it. How do you think about generosity? How you think about the parable will tell you something about how resigned and cynical you might be when it comes to generosity. But it doesn't tell you about God. Because God never gives in order to get. He never gives in order to get. Acts 17 says specifically that no human hand can meet God's needs because God has everything. He himself, says Paul, gives life and breath to everything. And he gives every good gift. There's nothing that God needs from you. There's nothing that you can give God that God doesn't already have. He doesn't give in order to get. The point of everything flowing from God, through God, and then ultimately back to God doesn't say anything at all about God's need. Rather, it says everything about our purpose. We're not the final destination of God's good gifts. We live midstream, so to speak. Listen to this paragraph from the reformer Martin Luther. He says, good things flow from Christ and are flowing into us. He has assumed us and acted for us as if he had been what we are. These good things then flow from us onto those who have need of them so that we should lay before God our faith and righteousness that they may cover and intercede for the sins of our neighbor which we take upon ourselves, and so labor and serve them as if they were our very own. For Luther, that's the mark of generosity. I give to my neighbor as if my neighbor was my very own. We are both receivers and givers. We live in the midst of this great stream of generosity. And it's in that flow of generosity that the evidence of God's ownership of all things is ultimately restored. Uh, God's ownership of everything is restored in such a way that he's glorified by it. That's where this text ends this morning. It ends with a call to glorify God. And that's where we must end also. Otherwise, we're just stuck in sentimentality and humanism. And as good as that might be, it isn't our ultimate aim. Our ultimate aim is to bring glory to God. God's glory is returned to him when his presence, his generous and giving and loving and healing presence is seen in his creation. That's at least part of what the early church father Irenaeus meant when he said the glory of God is the human person fully alive. The glory of God is the human person fully alive. God's glory is returned to him when human beings are living fully into the life that God intended to them. And your generosity and my generosity and the generous relationships that we cultivate contribute to and invest in that fully aliveness. It's our generous purpose. So here at church, we do that. Here at church, we're called 
in the next chapter, Romans 12, to be part of a body, to use our gifts, to bring our gifts with joy and commitment and dedication and sacrifice, to bring our gifts, our talents, our passions, our energies, the best that we have to each other. We bring that as a part of our generous relationship. Uh, we're, we're called to, to be reflections of God's generous presence with family, with friends, with neighbors. Sometimes just simply listening well is a mark of that gracious generosity. We're called to do that as we meet the needs of our community and careers as bankers and doctors and mechanics and teachers and scientists and everything else. We do that in the generous act of forgiving and of suffering alongside and of rejoicing with people who are promoted ahead of us and get things that we want. We're called to live as generous people because we enrich our neighbors and our families by doing it. And as people are called up to live fully alive lives, fully human lives, God is glorified by that. Would you pray with me, please?